This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And today I am joined by Mike Yuseem, and I hope to be joined by Jeff Klein as well. Right now he's having some connectivity issues. We are here on Zoom and looking forward to speaking to our guests shortly. But before we bring on our guests, let me remind you that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. Mike, let me be sure to welcome you to the show. How are you, Mike? And I'm doing great, and I hope you are equally great at least. I am. And Mike, I know that you uh, were traveling yesterday at least 12 hours in the car. Did I hear that right? Uh, that is correct. And I think we're all suffering. I'll speak for myself, but it's probably true of our guests as well, and you from a little cabin fever. So we decided to get out of the cabin and do a little traveling. Anyway, oh. I'm less feverish now. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Well, that means that you are ready uh, to join me and to welcome our guests. And let me say a little bit about them first. Our guests today have years of experience working with executives to improve their leadership. And their latest book is entitled Unleashed, The Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. And today I'm really delighted to welcome both Francis Fry and Ann Morris to the program. Francis and Ann, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ann. It's wonderful to be here. It certainly is. Well, it's delightful to have you here. Let me say just a little bit about you before we start, and I know that more of your biography will uh, come into the show as we talk, but Francis, uh, you are at the Harvard Business School and you've done a lot of research investigating how leaders create the conditions for organizations and individuals to thrive by designing for excellence in strategy, operations, and culture. And in fact, in 2017, you were tapped to be Uber's first senior vice president of leadership and strategy with a mandate to help Uber navigate its very public crisis in leadership and culture. And I know that we will talk about that. And Anne, you are a highly sought after leadership coach and your collaborators have ranged from early stage tech founders to Fortune 500 executives to public sector leaders building national competitiveness. You've spent the last 20 years building and leading mission-driven enterprises, serving most recently as CEO and founder of Gene Peaks, which addressed the urgent need for better personal health information. So Anne and Francis, let me first start, and I, I would actually like to start with your title, Unleashed. The Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. Can you say a little bit about how you settled on the first word, unleashed? Yeah, so the the short version of that is that we're really um, trying to unleash greatness in others 
So it's about unleashing the potential and the excellence of other people. Uh, unleashed because of the um, really rapid acceleration that can occur when, when you get this right. And I would just add that a, that a prize inside is when you get this right, you will also be unleashed. <laughs> okay. All right. And I know that the point about speed is very important here, and we'll come back to that. I also, uh, I was very touched as well by your, your um, dedication. And if I've got that right, the dedication to your sons. And let, I have to read it because I thought it was just uh, so, so wonderful. For Alec and Ben, may the best of you be unbound, and may you taste the sacred joy of setting other people free. Can you say a little bit about being the best, having the best of you? And I ask you that, and again, as Mike and, Mike and Jeff both know, uh, we find this show very therapeutic, and I am often striving to be my best self but not in a fixed mindset way, <laughs> in a growth mindset way, you know, to be as Dolly, um, I believe it's Cho would say, to be the person you mean to be. So can you say a little bit more about what you had in mind in that dedication to your sons? Sure. Um, in addition to being collaborators, we are also married uh, to each other. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, I, two beautiful boys and then and a dog, Rosie, who may interrupt us <laughs> at some point in this conversation. Um, but we were, um, uh, we also start the book with a quote by Toni Morrison. Yes. Um, which is, um, just remember that your real job, if you are free, you need to free someone else. If you have right. some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. And we really were moved by her ability to put into words um, what we have always felt was our own mission. And if there's a gift we can give to our readers and, and to our children, it's mm -hmm. to be um, to the pursuit of that mission, which is, uh, of course, bigger than um, you as an individual and um, a real reason that, that powered the writing of this whole book. Oh, if I can just add, and we're going to do this all the time. I would just yeah. <laughs> one person talk to the other one. You heard from Anne first, and now we're hearing from Francie. <laughs> uh, when we uh, gave the book to the boys to read, uh, they read it aloud, and they uh, talked about the scared joy. <laughs> oh, that's great. Really sacred. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah so we still have a little bit of work to do. We do have a little work to do. <laughs> With the nine-year-old. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to ask, how old are the boys? <laughs> Nine and 12. Nine and 12. Okay, so scared and sacred. Yes, <laughs> which are good. really two sides of the same coin. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. And that sense of awe, right, yep. that comes with both. How about Absolutely. one more question for me, and then I'm going to bring Mike into the conversation. The very first chapter is, uh, the title is, It's Not About You. <laughs> uh, can you say a little bit more about that, uh, about your wanting to start right there, and maybe even uh, give an illustration of what you mean? Uh, in yeah. an organizational sense. It's not about you. Yeah, and, and um, from our observation and, and a little bit of practice, we found a very big difference in performance when leaders were being coached to really think more about themselves and to look in the mirror a lot and have 360 degree reflectors on them and they, they were self-distracted versus we saw another set of leaders that were other distracted and it really was um, like the single biggest difference. And 
when we talk to the leaders that were self-distracted, it's not that they were born that way, but they had even been coached that way and the organization had been shaped for it. So we're trying to encourage, which I think was ultimately a natural act, but has become counter-instinctual because of all of the coaching that we've received. Yeah, and we really and, wanted to start the book there because it's the, it's the fundamental pivot from self to other that we believe you have to make uh, for, for leadership to be effective. All right, I'm sorry, Mike. I've got to ask one follow-up and then to you. Can you focus on other without having a better understanding of yourself? Um, I think that you do have to have a, an understanding of yourself, but if I, you know, read the literature today, mm -hmm. probably, you know, 80, you and 20 other, and we would just go ahead and flip that. Yes. Okay. Very good. Mike, please come in the conversation. Uh, well, first of all, Ann and Francis, great to have you on the program for many reasons. Uh, I loved the book. Great book. It's going to get a lot of traction out there for good reason. And to come back on um, a question Anne asked at the outset about the title, I'm really intrigued also by the first word in the subtitle, which is an unapologetic argument here. Mm -hmm. So why unapologetic? Yeah, yeah um, we, we love the word. Um, we think it has been maligned in certain circles, so we wanted to, to take it back uh, <laughs> and, and really own it. But what we mean by unapologetic is is the shameless uh, and full body commitment to other people. Yeah, and I take that to be this, and it's in the uh, the writing style from start to finish, uh, say it, get it out there, be clear. Let's not be shy about this uh, thought that the first element of anybody's leadership is uh, deciding the people around them are gonna make the difference. And the role of the leader, of course, is to help make that difference. Absolutely. So I'm sorry. And Francis, did you want to add to that too? I it, just the, the part of it that um, if it is counterintuitive to we want you to be unapologetic, like we like don't look don't look for permission to lead in this way. I'm not sure you'll get it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> allow people to join you in claiming victory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really take charge and make the difference, but in a way that we haven't read about before. I've got two odd kind of parallels to bring out, just to, to bring out your reaction to the parallels so we uh, have a, a clear understanding of the argument. In Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, of course, he makes the argument that those who take companies from good to really great are those that decide that the agenda here is not themselves, the agenda is the firm, first and foremost. So that sounds quite parallel, not quite the same, but relatively parallel. What, what do you think? Yeah, so they're both making arguments not to be self-distracted, and I think that's yeah. right. It might be in the second part that um, we believe it's other people, even perhaps at the distraction of the firm, because there might be short-term ways that you're developing other people that will be in the long-term interests. Um, but if you put us in a room together, I suspect we're going to agree on almost everything. <laughs> okay, good. Anne, you want to chime in on that one? Yeah, I yeah. think we would. We just we double click on this idea of the firm and emphasizing that it really is is the people around you that are going to make or break your success. Yeah, here's a second parallel. Then you may have run into the now chief executive at Estee Lauder Companies, Fabrizio Freda, who's been there for more than a decade. 
He's been on our campus a number of times. He helps to teach a course we do on leadership. And what's always caught my attention when he does appear is his um, unapologetic insistence that when he works with people, uh, many thousands now, he works to bring out the best and not try to get people to stop what isn't so good. Uh, that's a little awkward way on my part of putting it, but he does make the affirmative statement, let's build on what people are good at and not try to get them to move off what they're not so good at. So what do you think about that as a, I guess what amounts to kind of a parallel proof yeah. of concept here? So we believe it both at the human level and at the strategic level. So we wholeheartedly agree. It's um, if we believe that in order to be great, you have to be bad, like there's only so much time. And so really doubling down on what you're great at is the path to excellence. And if you're um, distracted by shoring up what you're not good at, you're likely to be average at everything and pretty exhausted at the end of it. So I think what he's saying is an unapologetic call to excellence um, by focusing and getting even better at the things you're good at. So it rings super true. Yeah, I also love Estee Lauder as an example because they've, if you just look at stock price alone, they've had a really extraordinary run over the last few years. And we are unapologetic <laughs> in our message that this isn't just about, you know, feeling good at the mm -hmm. office. Um, you know, this is about performance and building competitive advantage and sustaining that advantage over time. And the companies that get this kind of leadership right, we, you know, we sometimes call it empowerment leadership, really, really succeed in a way that their competitors don't. Yeah. Well, Anna Francis, I can't agree with you more about the critical importance of getting it right. Let's come back to that in a minute, because I think I yeah. sense on Anne's face and need to remind our listeners who they are listening to. I'm like such a pleasure, and you're absolutely right. Let me remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Ann Greenhall. I'm here today with Mike Yuseem, and together we have the true pleasure of speaking with Francis Fry and Ann Morris, and they are the authors of Unleashed, the Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. Mike, did you have a follow-up that you wanted to ask? Just a very short one, then, Ann, back to you, and that is, um, maybe Ann can get this going from your own coaching experience. If there's one way to move um, um, even an entry-level manager, but maybe especially middle-level manager, in the direction of empowering everybody, uh, how do you help make that happen in the first instance? Yeah, well, we start where I usually start the conversation where we start the book, which is what does it mean for you for it to not be about you? I mean, particularly early in our careers, we're so aware of what we're not doing well because we're early in in the game of mastery, um, and so it's very very easy to be self distracted. And yet the leadership path is all about making that pivot towards helping other people succeed. And so that's, that's honestly typically where we begin. Uh, I love the implicit notion, and that is somebody can begin pretty far, far behind the eight ball in this, but nonetheless become better at this. It's, it's a learned skill set, not from heaven, but actually from what we do and what we decide. Oh, yeah, I love that. I mean, people think this leadership thing is just is great. You're born into it or you're not. Yeah. Um, and it that couldn't be further from the truth. We see people make extraordinary progress all of the time. Francis, <laughs> want to 
Yeah, I do. And I love the not from heaven metaphor. <laughs> it's, um, uh, but not only do we see people make extraordinary progress, but we seem they make extraordinary progress over very brief periods of time, because it's almost like once you get the new lenses on your glasses, you can't stop seeing it. So it's, it's we work to flip the switch, but when the, the switch is flipped, woo. Yeah, people are unstoppable. Yeah. Yeah, great. And back to you. Good. Well, uh, Francis and Anne, I have a follow-up question that is, I think, a little bit nuanced, and I'd love your coaching on this. How, how do you, or how does one, as a staff member in an organization, regardless of where you are in the hierarchy, how do you go about empowering others, putting others first over the self without having the self get lost? It's so good. Um, and one of the, so the metaphor will be uh, when you're a great person to work with, people are going to come knocking <laughs> on the door and want you to do more. So it'll be an accelerant for you. And the way to do that is for each person, and you don't have to be managing them. And I, we do find there's a distinction between management and leadership. Leadership is about others. Management, you have to, you also have some additional things you have to do. Um, but if, if, if you can set high standards for people and reveal that you're simultaneously deeply devoted to their success, you don't have to be their supervisor in order to do that. Right. And in, in fact, one of the lovely ways to do it is to ask follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Why do you think that? I don't like, and that's a way to do it when you're not in the hierarchy um, mm -hmm. and it facilitates other people building on each other. And so, as Mike knows well, the most beautiful classes are when the students are building upon each other. Absolutely. And even more beautiful is when they're asking one another follow-up questions and then right. we sort of fade into the background. I think you can practice that uh, in meetings regardless of where you are. So we often think, let me make my point yeah. and instead be curious about what other people are saying, um, mm. if, mm. That, if that helps. That does. And Anne, would you like to add? Yeah, I, I think um, one one clarification is um, is again, you know, our message is is not to not focus on the self. Mm -hmm. uh, it is it is to flip that ratio, that eighty twenty ratio, and then to also realize that when you are putting the oxygen mask on yourself, which which we all need to do now more than ever, in order to be of service to the world, uh, that those activities are not leadership activities. So what, what we want to say is, yeah, take a time out, do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. Uh, that's essential. Uh, and then come back to the leadership path um, when, when you're ready to do that. Maybe just to follow up, and I know, uh, Francis, this, uh, this is important to both of you, and you have worked at Harvard, I believe, to make the school more gender inclusive. Can you comment on this uh, devotion to others through the lens of gender. Yeah. And, and I'm asking as well, you know, about recognition, making sure that those who have devoted themselves to others are recognized. Yeah, I think the latter is super important. Um, and often we sometimes, it was like this, whatever that phrase was that those that can do, do, and those that can't teach, like that somehow yeah. got stuck. And it's, right. It, it really diminished the service to others. Um, yeah. it's, it's that those of us, uh, so acknowledging that the best thing 
you can do is to empower other people. Um, so one of the things that we did at HBS when we realized that um, there were huge gender disparities back in about 2011 between um, men, G, men's, men's GPA and women's GPA and men's satis self-reported satisfaction and women's self-reported satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And when we became aware of the data and had understood that it had existed for a quite a long time, we also heard a lot of explanations for why it existed. Women aren't as competitive, like they just everyone had their hypotheses that they were kind of stating as fact. Mm -hmm. And it didn't match our experience of having interacted with all of these magnificent men and women um, on the campus. And so we unapologetically, I think, went after uh, trying to close those gaps. And what was important is that, for example, when we closed the satisfaction gap, it didn't mean that men got less satisfied and women got more satisfied. Men's satisfaction went up and women's satisfaction went up a lot. And that's the way that we closed the gaps. And I do think that if we don't recognize doing that, it... Um, after five or six years, you could forget it and it could, you could fall back into it. And mm -hmm. also, if we look now at today, um, you know, there are enormous issues throughout the country, throughout the world, certainly on Harvard's campus, where black and non-black students mm -hmm. um, certainly don't have the same representation, even appropriate representation. Um, and so I want us to be constantly thinking about how to close the gaps. Mm -hmm. So we have to celebrate the closing of the gaps. So even if you're not going to celebrate the individual, we certainly have to celebrate the participation in it. And it is a noble effort to work and, and close those demographic tendencies. Can you say just a little bit more about how you did that? I'm sorry, Anne, to, to jump in, but I'm no, just no, no. curious. I, I, it's a great, it's a great follow-up because I think this, the, the, the texture of the story is, is yeah. important. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So one, one thing we did when we looked at the grades part of it, for example, mm -hmm. Um, fifty percent of every grade is an exam. Fifty percent is class participation. It mm -hmm. wasn't the exam variation that was leading to the difference in performance. It was class participation. Oh. And then we double, so then we double clicked on that, and we found that a lot of it was a slow start. And that is that some people showed up in the classroom ready to take up, have their voice be heard early and often, mm -hmm. and other people had a much slower ramp. Mm -hmm. And what we uh, then thought is if we can have, because it's a pretty unnatural act to go sit in a tiered classroom and, you know, and, and talk. So yeah. we came up with um, various ways for people to find their voice, to find their audacity, to find their swagger. So we introduced small group experiential stuff alongside, was the field method alongside the case method. So that and our hope was that more and more varied people would find their voice and that then there would be spillover immediately into the classroom. And indeed, that's what happened. Um, so we just had to look for what were the obstacles that were getting in the way, mm -hmm. pivot, pivot, pivot until you could uh, come up with it. And it, it took us a year to close the, um, to close the gaps, um, which, you know, maybe we got lucky in, in narrowing in on it quickly, but it also was the resolve of the whole school like once we found out what worked we then set it into the ether of the school and the faculty were of course much better at continuing it and making it even better than the few designers that began and i can certainly see how what you uh experimented with at harvard is applicable to the workplace 
because oh. certainly in meetings around a table, no matter again at what level, there are likely to people, there are people who can jump on that conversational highway really easily and often, and others who do not. <laughs> but finding uh, multiple ways of participating, uh, I think would help bring, you know, empower others and bring their ideas into the fold. And here's the cool thing, Anne, is that if I give you alternate ways, it will spill over so you will have as much swagger in that big room because it's important to be um, articulate in the big room. But these other ways are like activation methods. Picking up on uh, Anna and Francis, what you've just said, if somebody comes to you, let's say a MBA student in the HBS program there, or perhaps somebody working at Uber, one of the companies that you, you both um, had contact with in some detail and says, I'm unapologetically not an empowerer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At the micro level, the individual level, how do we get people to get on the journey that you outline in the book so well? Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we often start with, well, how, how's that working out for you? Um, <laughs> Um, and that, it's usually why we're in the dialogue because it's um, it's not over the long term. Uh, it's not sustainable if your job is to enable other people's performance. Uh, let's see, Anne and Francis. Uh, at the top of the hour, I asked you about your title, the dedication. Uh, you mentioned the beautiful quote by Toni Morrison. We talked about your first chapter. It's not about you. I, I actually have a question about the structure of your book. You have divided the book into two sections, one called presence and one called absence. And I would just love to know your thinking behind that organizational structure. Yeah, so one of the things is that we, lead, we believe that leadership is about making others better, which we've talked about. Mm -hmm. You first get to do that as a result of your presence, but the mark of a great leader is does it last into our absence? Now our absence could be mm. for the weekend, our <laughs> absence could be for yeah. vacation, right. um, but we believe the ultimate measure is when we've moved on, um, are people continuing to thrive? That is, did we somehow lead in a way that made them too reliant on us? Mm -hmm. or did we leave in a way where they are unleashed to greatness even in even in our absence? And so mm. you think there are some things you have to do for your presence. But then for the absence, it's how do I guide discretionary behavior when I'm not there? Um, mm -hmm. We feel pretty strongly that there are two ways to do it. Mm -hmm. One is how well somebody understands the strategy. And that is, right. um, and then we find that everywhere where strategy is silent, that's where culture is going to drive our discretionary behavior. And so paying attention to those two things for our absence um, is uh, we find that works in practice. And this is kind of a how-to book. And yes. so we did it. We built it up for do this first. Like we believe trust is the first step in presence and we believe strategy is the first step in absence. And would you like to add to that? Yeah, just jumping off the how-to book. I mean, we really, we really tried to tell you know our readers everything they need to know <laughs> around <laughs> these topics, including the topics of strategy and leadership. Um, and so, if you get towards the end of the book, uh, you, it does take on a little bit of a different tone uh, as we go. But but we believe this is 
the definitive guide to leadership today, uh, including, you know, culture and what you need to know about building great culture and, and defining great strategy. Oh, that's great. And I, I, I love your unapologetic claim. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Ariana me, Huffington gave us courage. <laughs> that is great. So good. Uh, let me follow up by asking you a little bit about the first part, presence. And I know uh, from reading through your book that you really put an emphasis on trust, on love, and on belonging. And when you talk about trust, you're talking in particular about empathy, logic, and authenticity. I might, I know we have yet to really give a concrete example that illustrates oh, your, what you're talking about. And I might, Francis, ask you to talk about Uber in relationship to trust. Yeah. So, so could you illustrate that for us? Sure. So, um, I think Uber pretty famously had a breakdown in trust with lots of its constituents in June of 2017 when I arrived. And so we worked to rebuild those. What we have found is that if you try to vaguely or generally build trust, people will have many different interpretations. And so mm -hmm. we're really trying to operationalize it. And we've tried to operationalize each part of this. And so what we found is that we could trace back the obstacles there and then subsequently from there to the three things that you mentioned. Like, do people believe we're being true to our word? Or are we saying one thing here and another thing there? Do they believe in the rigor of our thinking? And do they believe we're in it for them? And I think that Uber had a, had a challenge with regulators, certainly thought we were working against them. So there was yeah. a lack of there. Mm -hmm. Drivers really felt a lack of empathy as well, um, that we, uh, we weren't nearly as focused on drivers as we were on riders. In fact, mm -hmm. I think it was when riders became fed up with the behavior towards drivers that we right. finally turned the corner, which I love when stakeholders hold us um, to even higher standards. So I think that the empathy wobble was pretty clear in a lot of ways, but Uber didn't have just one wobble. There were logic wobbles, and this I find very common in tech companies where they're where they have costs that exceed revenues. Hmm. It's just really hard to build logic on top of that, and so you just start getting all kinds of fantasies. Um, and I think that happens with super well-funded startups that think it's first mover advantage, which I'm not going to argue with but you have to try even harder to make sure people understand where physics applies. And so we did a lot of illogical things like offering rides over a long term, getting into price wars that were just more and more deteriorating. So great for riders, but really terrible for, I think, investors and terrible for the competitive landscape. Um, and then I think the authenticity also was a, uh, at times became a problem because people would say something that they didn't believe thinking they were being like good team players. Like if my boss tells me something and I don't agree with it, but I'm going to go tell the rest of the team. And that actually sacrifices your ability to build trust. And there was a lot of that, that there was so-and-so said, so that's why we're doing it. It's actually a terrible reason to do something. <laughs> um, we have to at least interrogate so-and-so so that we get to a point where reasonable people can disagree. And that's like the lowest test we need before we can go out and talk about it. 
So I'd say that Uber was not doing any of this intentionally, but was hitting almost all of its stakeholders with its tail, like just whacking uh, people on the trust side. But when it, the encouraging part is when it deliberately tried to build trust and it went back to these three drivers, the, the rebuilding of trust can be very quick as long as you don't send mixed messages. Mm. As I'm not like doing the right thing on Monday, but not on Tuesday, like you don't get partial credit for the rebuilding. <laughs> if the rebuilding is consistent, you can get there awfully quickly. Oh, very good. One more, one follow up for me and then Mike, I know you will want to follow up. Um, you've talked about the regulators, the drivers, the customers in relationship to Uber and the wobble that Uber demonstrated both in, in empathy and in logic and in authenticity. How about internally, the evidence of the internal wobble? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the most, um, I, I still find it breathtaking, uh, is that when I was um, facilitating the senior team, and so I went, went to the meeting, and this is when we were between CEOs, uh, and the senior team was about 16 people. It had originally been 12 people, but I had asked the board if I could bring in four more people. And they mm -hmm. thought that was crazy, except for I knew it would be collectively exhaustive. And I didn't want anyone outside of the room to be able to be the decision maker. Like I wanted all of the decision makers in the room mm -hmm. and required 16 people. Here was the crazy thing that was happening. Um, people were texting in the meeting were texting people, which is a, a big empathy wobble because you're, you're saying it's, it's about me, not about right. us. Right. We're texting one another. Oh, about each other. About each other. Oh no. <laughs> so the notion of like, I wonder oh. what people's thought bubbles are. You mm. knew for sure they had thought bubbles because mm. they were texting and you could see it. And so it was, and it was just second nature. It wasn't like we're trying yeah, to it's be su it. super common in Silicon Valley. This but like oh. just pulverizing in terms of uh, that, like that breaks down trust for an, a hard empathy <laughs> wobble. Oh. Uh, we had technology off and away as a, as a norm. Um, and not only did it mean that we built trust because we got rid of those, uh, those wobbles, but we also were able to accelerate action because when there's not parallel play going on, <laughs> yeah. you can do things a lot quicker. So good. Mike, please join me. Well, just to play with that for a second, one very important thing if you're in that room and texting your colleagues in the room is to get the address correct. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Oh. Untrust. So, but uh, let me come back to this question now, uh, which I had from from um, in a very practical sense from from looking at the book and hearing you right now, and that is it seems to me you've got two challenges here. One is to reach people individually, to appreciate the, the power of inclusion, but then they become carriers, so they take those ideas into the organization. That's how we get leverage, and that's that's in your book as well. So say a couple of things about what seems to work best in reaching individuals to help them unleash their own journey in this direction. And then number two, what, what are some of the more powerful steps they can take when they, with this insight, can take it back into their own enterprise? Yeah, well, I love your... Um... I love your virus metaphor, Mike. That's <laughs> <laughs> so timely. Uh, which, is, which is, yeah, very resonant right now. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of truth to it, so that um, we really believe in, in changing minds um, 
one person at a time, but there are ways you can do that at scale. Um, and, you know, we're, we're educators by training and disposition. And so we really believe that uh, if you change the way people think, you can um, very quickly change the way that they act and behave. And so our, our lever, our, the most powerful level we push on is um, what, are, what are your ideas and your mental models for the world? And the shift on inclusion uh, because it touches so many things and so many people can be can be incredibly powerful. So we would, you know, shamelessly and unapologetically suggest reading <laughs> chapter four, um, which is belonging, um, but also to really um, engage in good faith on, on the idea that inclusion is a way to unlock uh, the the potential and and the advantage of the entire organization. And if you look at the performance of companies like Microsoft. Um, and companies who have really embraced that idea, um, their performance has skyrocketed in, a, in really short order. Um, and so that is one of, one of the most incredible ideas uh, and powerful ideas operating right now and incredibly infectious um, is the idea that in inclusion uh, is, is a competitive advantage. And if, if I could just add to that just for one thing, we also, anytime a senior team asks us to come in and work with them, we offer as a uh, as an add-on, a free add-on, uh, that we can teach the entire organization. Um, because we find if you get to the top and you get to everyone else, it will, that just helps make the virus and make it contagious. So we don't rely solely on the top to, tr to cascade it down. We actually go at both parts of it. It's, it's often much easier for the broad organization to um, adopt the messages from the senior team because the senior team has lots of other responsibilities. And so it's, it's good for them to also hear the, and feel the tidal wave coming from the rest mm -hmm. of the organization. And before I throw this back to Anne, just to underscore what you've said implicitly, which to me is an absolutely vital point, the changes you're thinking about or promoting or pushing people to consider, they don't make 2% difference. They make a big difference, a 30% difference. And as soon as we talk about something that's more than 2%, we're talking about something that really is going to make a difference. So not that we need to have a number on that, but uh, if, you, if you both could just comment on how much difference this can make if you get it right. So Andy, you want to start with that one? Yeah, I mean, I would, I mean, we can, it's, it's tough to get a percentage. Um, I would round it off to, it can make all of the difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it's also, you know, we are, um, we, again, by disposition, are not interested in incremental change. Not at all. So um, we all, obviously, we care about diversity and inclusion on a, a whole bunch of levels. Um, but we also care about it because it can transform, it's an idea that can transform organizations in record time, because yep. it is about tapping into the unused potential of the human assets that come to work every day. And if you look at what percentage, you know, if we just keep doing what we're doing, you know, the, the, the percentage that you're able to tap into is, is relatively small. I mean, I think if you look at the engagement numbers, there's been some just astonishing research that most people show up to work and feel fundamentally disengaged. And if you bring this inclusion and belonging lens into the organization as a way to tap into that unused potential, you can change the performance of an organization overnight. 
Yeah. I think there's evidence that you can get people four times as engaged. That's how low the baseline engagement is. Yep. So I would, if I was going to do a number, I'm going to go over a hundred percent is where my estimate. <laughs> That's great. Very good. A lot of leverage. Anne, over to you. Very good. Just want to remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Anne Greenhall. I'm here today with Mike Yuseem, and together we are speaking with Francis Fry and Anne Morris, the authors of Unleashed, the Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. Well, we are coming around the corner here, and I want to make sure that we get a chance to talk about uh, absence. So when we're really doing our job, <laughs> we have empowered others, we have built trust, we have demonstrated our love, our unwavering devotion, we have created a sense of belonging, and we know that we can step back and that others will carry on. And the two ways uh, our absence in, uh, in demonstrating uh, leadership during our absence is through strategy and culture. Now, I know Mike is going to want to ask questions about strategy and leadership here. Uh, Francis, I'll just start with you. How do you think about absence and strategy? Yeah, so what we found is that it's not like Anne and I are going to uncover new types of strategies. There are magnificent academics and practitioners that are doing great work, but here's our observation. You can have a great strategy, but it doesn't cascade down to the organization, and that's equivalent to having a bad strategy. So some, there's been a huge obstacle in how well strategy is understood in the organization. And so we, that's where we focused our attention on how to make the strategy. So we came up with a framework um, so that we all have a common understanding of strategy and one that's accessible at the top of the organization and throughout the organization. Um, the return on strategy in our mind is a return on communication. And so we talk a great deal about how to communicate it effectively. So essentially taking it off the binder on a shelf or off out of the minds of the 10 brilliant strategists and have it guide the discretionary behavior of people throughout the organization. Um, and so that's really what we tried to do in the, in the strategy chapter. We did offer one additional thought, which, uh, which we developed in our first book, um, which is what we were speaking about earlier, that, that organizations that want to be great really need to have the stomach to be bad. It sounds like it's lazy, but it's not. It's a, I want to be um, bad in the service of great. And the metaphor that we always use there is when Steve Jobs originally talked to us about the making of the MacBook Air. And he was so excited about it because it was going to be the lightest weight laptop on the market. He knew very well that because it was going to be the lightest weight laptop, it was going to be best in class at that. It was going to be worst in class at physical, uh, at other physical features like internal CD-ROM, I believe, was the, <laughs> was the extra weight of the day. So he was um, specifically, unapologetically great at weight and worst in class at additional physical features. He argued he could have been best in class at physical features and worst in class at weight. He mm -hmm. thought those were two legitimate choices. The choice that he really loathed was being average at both. Right. And I think that that's a, we have to unleash, we can't teach people to be great at physical features in the morning mm -hmm. and great at being lightest weight in the afternoon or tell people just go and do your best at both because that's going to lead us to that exhausted mediocrity. So we have to be super clear about what we're optimized to be great at 
And we find that missing link is what are you optimized to be bad at? Uh, and there's just one management tip, and then I'll, uh, I'm curious what Anne has to say. But when you hand out a red, yellow, and green color-coded management report, you're essentially communicating to people to go and focus on their weaknesses. Because ask people what they're drawn to. They're drawn to the reds. Mm -hmm. That's, so we, we actually try to encourage people not to use the color red for the ones. Like if you're deliberately not good at physical features, celebrate that as much as you celebrate the light, the lightweight. And what would you add? I, I just want to emphasize your your point about the the importance of strategic communication. Yeah. Um, once you figure out what you're going to be good and bad at, um, cascading it down to the rest of the organization is is just as essential. And in in the book, we we celebrate Shark Tank uh, because mainly because it's Francis's favorite. <laughs> A television program, uh, but it's a great example of of needing to figure out how to communicate your strategy quickly to a shark who may not know anything about your industry, but also to the viewers back home. If you can't do that quickly and persuasively and powerfully, then you don't win the game. And so, one piece of advice we give is to you know turn on Shark Tank at the end of the day just to get those strategic communication muscles fired up. Good. Mike, you and Habir have written about leadership and strategy, so you need to follow up. <laughs> uh, well, let's think about leadership and strategy and culture. Here's the argument that's in your book, to, but just to, to put it in front of us. When you move from a, a, a small startup where the, the top person knows everybody, everything about everybody's known to everybody else, to a company like Walmart with more than 2 million employees, the chief executive there is going to see in his or her entire lifetime, only a tiny fraction of those who ultimately report to the CEO. So once we get our strategy right, we're maybe halfway there. We also have to get the culture to work with that strategy. So a couple of thoughts on your parts uh, on how culture uh, can work with or sometimes alas against strategy. So what, what you're thinking as yeah. a plus sign it's beautiful. Um, and so one of the things is we do believe that your strategy is, does reveal your values and uh, it's a deliberate, like that's an act of leadership of like who you're going to benefit and who you're not. And the extension to that uh, on the, if that's the beginning of the values, then goes into cultural values. Some organizations there stated, put up on the wall, your employees on Slack are going to say hashtag cultural value number one, <laughs> hashtag cultural value number two. So we think the values go all the way through it. And there are some cultural values that actually make a lot of sense in, in integrating with a, a strategy. And then there are some cultural values that are just good regardless of it. Um, so we really do believe, as you said, it's strategy first and then culture uh, after it to amplify the strategy and then also to communicate our values. Um, we've done a lot of work. So we get brought into companies that, that don't want incremental change, that want a big inflection point. Sometimes that's when they're like in a toxic place. So how do you get out of a toxic place? And sometimes it's, we're doing well and we just wanna skyrocket. We've been getting calls more recently on overcoming the toxicity. So that's the disproportionate um, amount of time. So we spend a good deal of time on how to change your culture because that's where most people are coming in. And we're super, 
we have f um, found a path that works well for changing culture, and that's what we tried to communicate in the book. Great. Anne, you want to add a thought? Yeah, I think to, to your opening point, Mike, the, the reality of culture and strategy is that they're you know, the way people experience them is in a very blended way inside organizations. So we, you know, we divide it up in the book and we recommend a sequence and we, you know, we bring different frameworks to each of these discussions. Um, but in, in the practical day-to-day, yeah. -day, they're, they're very integrated concepts. And so making sure that they are aligned um, is, is often where we uh, suggest executives focus. It's great. Back to you, Anne. Oh, thank you, Mike. I have a follow-up. Um, Francis and, and um, Mike will know uh, the leadership program has three values, stated explicit values, compassion, excellence, and learning. Oh. Of those three values, do you see one of them as being uh, essential regardless of the strategy? one or more essential, regardless of the strategy. I'm just kind of curious about yeah. values in relationship to strategy. Golly, um, my eyes go to learning first, but then I'm like, I'm not going to be the person who steps over <laughs> compassion. And then excellence is the thing that drives all yeah. of it. So I think the only thing I would add to it is a, a learning that I had on my quest towards excellence was when someone pointed out to me that my passion was usually clear, but my compassion wasn't always clear. Mm and that the, the passion inside the compassion it turned out to be super helpful, but I sure couldn't prioritize one of those three over the others. <laughs> and how about you? We, you know, as yeah. I said, the show is always therapeutic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. I was, I was drawn to learning first, um, but I think part of that is, is, what, what, is what are the requirements of having a learning mindset? And in some ways, compassion and excellence are built into that. Um, because you you have to have an open mind on the way to excellence if you're going to get there, but particularly in this dynamic environment where things are changing constantly. Um, and without some compassion for yourself and others, you're not going to be able to stumble up that learning curve in an efficient way. Very good. Well, thank you so much. We have just a, a minute left. So I would love for you to say a little bit about where others can learn more about your book and your work. So, um, Anne, would you like to start? Sure. Um, you can find the book wherever you find your books <laughs> yes. in the world, from, from Amazon to independent bookseller. We also have a, um, a website called theleadersguide.com, which you can learn more about the book um, and, and our work and what we're up to. Um, Francis, in particular, is very active on LinkedIn. So um, if you want to engage in a dialogue, um, Find find her on LinkedIn, and I'm I'm getting up to speed. Uh, I I might I have more of a taste for Twitter, um, so you can right. find me on Twitter and Francis on LinkedIn, which probably reflects our personalities. Totally, <laughs> very totally. good. Well, I need to thank you both, Francis Fry and Ann Morris, and also of course Mike for joining me today. Mike, you seem. I need to thank our producer Patty Hall and our sound engineer Dion Simpkins. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Yuseem, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Join us next week. Take care. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 